Hi, I'm Kate and I attend the 6.30 congregation with my husband Max and it is my pleasure to read from the Bible for us today. Today we're reading from 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 to 37. I'll give you a moment to find it in your Bibles. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to obtain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only as those who, who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no defeat deceit was found in his mouth. When they held their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Hi, my name's Scott. I'm one of the ministers from St Matthew's. We're actually filming today from my living room. So if you're really polite, I might invite you over, put the kettle on. But actually, I will need you to have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2. And as you do that, it's worth saying there are some awkward verses in the Bible. Some of them are awkward just because they include harmless hyperbole. Like, for example, at the end of John's Gospel, where John writes, uh, Jesus did many other things not recorded, and if they were all written down, not even the whole world would have enough 
room for the books that would be written. Not even the whole world, John, a bit of an exaggeration there. Sometimes the Bible is awkward because the events it describes are awkward. In the Old Testament book of Judges, there is a judge called Ehud, and he drives a sword through an obese king called Eglon in his ensuite bathroom. And the king's servant, supposing that he was relieving himself, waited to the point of embarrassment, it says in the text, before going in to find their dead king on the floor. Uh, that's awkward. Leviticus in the Old Testament is full of awkward verses about infectious diseases, mold and mildew, what you can and can't eat when you were and weren't clean. Here is my personal favorite, Leviticus 13 verse 40. When a man has lost his hair and is bald, he is clean. If he's lost his hair from the front of his scalp and has a bald forehead, he is clean. Just a real handy little verse I keep in my back pocket and bring out whenever I need. But the verses before us today are really in a whole other category of awkward uh, because they seem to not only encourage the practice of slavery but also justify a form of marriage in which a wife is repressed by an overlord of a husband. And so you might be smugly sitting there in your living room wondering how I'm going to get out of this one. Well, we'll wait and see, won't we? But with careful attention to the words and their context, I think these verses neither justify slavery um, or a brutish marriage. In fact, after the talk, we're going to be praying for an end to slavery in our modern world. But friends, today is still going to be awkward for us, and these verses are going to require us to be countercultural, probably just in a different way than you might at first expect. The way the passage before us today works is by first introducing a general principle or dynamic that we're going to incorporate into our Christian lives, and that is called live good lives. And then the Apostle Peter applies that in one particular way, submit yourselves, and then he gives what I think is four or five examples of ways in which we are to do that. So there's a general principle, live good lives. And then a particular application, submit yourselves. And then four or five specific examples of how to do that. Well, I think that's how today's passage works. So let's rip in. That general principle of live good lives is at the top of the passage. And so it's important to read it again, um, verses 11 and 12. Read along with me in your own Bibles. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So you can clearly see that principle, live good lives. But before we even think about what it might mean to live good lives, we need to note the way that we are described because that is key. So if you have a look at verse 10 that we looked at last week, that describes us as Christians in flowery, gushing terms that ought to warm our hearts if there's any life left within us. Among other things, we are described as a people belonging to God or God's special possession. Now the people of God when we formerly weren't. But when you just flick over one verse into verse 11, we're also described as foreigners and exiles. People who don't belong here. I mean, we belong to God, but we don't belong here. We are, as our series title suggests, away from home while we're in this world. Like that description at the start of the book where God's elect 
exiles, foreigners and exiles in our culture. And that's a key reason that drives the live good lives instructions that Peter gives. And so you'll see in verse 11 that the principle is stated in the negative and quite strongly abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So part of why we live good lives is because that impacts upon us, upon our souls. But then in verse 12, we see the same principle stated in the positive. Live such good lives among the pagans. And that's just Peter's sort of general word for unbelieving folks. It's not rude at all. That though they might accuse us of wrongdoing, they will actually see our good deeds and glorify God. And so it's stated negatively, abstain from sinful desires and positively live such good lives because it impacts our own souls but also because it impacts unbelieving folks, those who Peter calls pagans who live around us. I wonder if you've ever had the sense that you're being watched. I don't necessarily mean in a sinister way like you're being stalked. I mean, if you're a parent, you would know that your kids watch everything you do. I mean, they hear everything that you say and then they use it against you in the most mischievous ways. I mean, people think children are cute and adorable. I tell you, they're criminal masterminds. They really are. But you might have also noticed it on your computer. I mean, why is it when I'm searching for bike tires online that the next day when I'm reading the newspaper online, I start to see ads for bike tires pop up everywhere. It's like they're watching my every move. And I'm sure you've experienced that as well. You know, if you let it be known that you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, I guarantee that people will be watching you too, very closely. And so Peter instructs us to live good lives, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of unbelievers around us, some of whom are likely to be hostile. They might accuse us of wrongdoing, but ultimately because it might lead them to glorify God. It's so interesting how he puts it. Live good lives. So that's the top level principle for us people belonging to God who are foreigners and exiles away from home in this world, live good lives. But as the passage just progresses, Peter identify, identifies one application that carries through from chapter 2 verse 13 uh, all the way until at least chapter 3 verse 8 and probably even further. And that application is submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. The Apostle Peter, the, this rock upon whom the whole church is built, Jesus' right-hand man, speaks about it in four or five ways. And uh, let me be honest, some of them are pretty pointy. And so we naturally resist, I think, the idea of submitting to anyone uh, or anything. If we're honest, we'd probably say that resisting submission is almost the air that we breathe in 21st century secular Australia. I mean, we were founded by convicts, the European chapter of our history. So there's a, a rich vein of anti-authoritarian blood that runs right through Australian culture. And because Western culture is so individualistic, we're naturally opposed to taking leadership from anyone who might tell us what to do. And so we might naturally resist Peter's application of his general principle of live good lives. But I believe that you do want to live a good life. And so we've got to 
grapple with this text instead of just resisting? Well, the first example is an instruction to submit ourselves to governing authorities or human authorities there in verses 13 to 17. And we don't have time to go into this in great detail, and that's okay, because we've covered it in more detail both in the Winter Hotspot series and also in our time in Ecclesiastes. But, but you can see that from verse 14, that as Christians we obey human authorities because God has supplied them for the good ordering of our society, even when they're not Christian, even when they might enact laws and rules that might be opposed to what we believe. You can see from verse 15 that general principle again. Obey human authorities, or doing good, he calls it in verse 15, because that will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. In other words, unbelieving folks around us will notice us doing good, and that will quiet their accusations. So, for example, when our Honourable Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, requests that we wear masks and don't sing at church, we don't go, get stuff, Gladys, you don't own us, Jesus rules this church. We go, no problems, Premier. I mean, it's, it, it's not convenient. It's uncomfortable. It really does restrict what we'd like to do. But she's the boss on this one, and we want to be good citizens, and we want to love our neighbours well, and so it's no trouble at all for us to submit to her leadership. Submission, when you think of it, has a wide range of meanings, doesn't it? Uh, it can mean quite harmlessly handing in your essay at school or university. You might say, I've submitted my assignment uh, or my application form or my tax return. But then much less harmlessly, submission in fields of wrestling or mixed martial arts occurs when you yield to your opponent because they've outmaneuvered you or they've overpowered you. I mean, that looks painful, and it also results in an immediate defeat. In other words, it hurts, and it means you lose. And I think it's fair to say that we bring that sort of idea to our understanding of submission in life more generally. We think it hurts, and we think we lose. We would probably bring that to verse 18's instruction to slaves to submit themselves, and I'd like to deal with that in a bit more detail in a moment. So we can um, jump down now to chapter 3, verse 1, where you can see that instruction again repeated to wives. And without doubt, we bring this negative connotation of submission to the instruction in 3, verse 1, to wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And it really does at this point start to feel awkward, doesn't it? And moreover, it sounds like it hurts and that somebody loses. Wives, submit to your husbands. How can we possibly say that in 21st century Australian culture? When this verse and the ones that follow would have been used by some men to harshly treat the women that they had vowed to love and protect. Surely we should just cut that bit out. Well, I agree. We should just cut that bit out. If submission means that a husband should harshly treat his wife, bossing her about while she meekly services his every desire. I mean, if that's what it means, go ahead, cut it out. Of course, you'd have gathered that I don't think that's what it means. And I think uh, submission can be properly defined as wise and willing support 
for someone's leadership. And so wives are being asked by scripture, mind you, not by their husbands, certainly not by men in general, to wisely and willingly support their husband's leadership. And it's not because he's better or smarter than you. He may or may not be. I mean, he's certainly not perfect. And it doesn't mean you can't disagree with him because a good leader is always able to admit shortcomings, doesn't always have to be right, get their own way, or have the final word. It's again interesting to note the reason why Peter gives for submission in verse 1, so that any of those husbands don't believe the word, they may be won over to the claims of Christ without words by the behaviour, that is the living good lives of their Christian wives. And that thought line, unbelievers are watching us all the time, just seems to run through this passage, doesn't it? You will see if you look at verse 7 that there is an instruction to the husbands that is in some way paralleled, although not identical. Husbands, verse 7, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. You see, husbands, you don't get to insist that your wife submits to you. You get to focus on being considerate and understanding, treating her with respect and honour, and ultimately serving her by putting her uh, needs, her preferences, her comforts, her good before your own. That's what you get to focus on. And so on this Father's Day, a day which is devoted to our men, could the husbands amongst us devote themselves freshly to taking responsibility in their marriage and families rather than taking a back seat? To taking initiative uh, spiritually and emotionally, being respectful rather than dismissive, and self-sacrificially serving and loving your wives so that an instruction to wives to submit to their husbands is a delight, so that it's not a burden for them to wisely and willingly support that sort of leadership. It's unfortunate that we don't have time to deal with this in any more detail, uh, which is a shame because it really deserves uh, lots of airtime in its own right. Uh, Kelsey's very helpfully put together a, a one-pager, double-sided, with um, further explanation and thoughtful ideas which we can get to you if you want to ask about that. But for now, can I just return to the section about slaves submitting to their masters, which is kind of the third point of application of this principle of submission. I should say before we go any further that slavery and marriage aren't parallel scenarios, although um, some of you might joke that being married to your husband feels like that. Uh, marriage was created by God, commanded by God, even thoroughly endorsed and esteemed by him. Slavery, on the other hand, wasn't created by God. Uh, it's not endorsed by him. So please don't hear me say that we are equating or that the Apostle Peter is equating the slave-master relationship with the husband-wife relationship. They're vastly different. Although both relationships are kind of touched upon by this application of submission. But on our passage's words about slavery, some might say, look, that encourages slavery. The Bible encourages slavery, or at least it doesn't encourage masters to free their slaves. And I just need you to hear me say that's factually incorrect. Uh, for no less reason than because the archetypal event of the Old Testament, the, the Exodus 
out of Egypt was a God-ordained liberation from slavery. I mean, the rest of the Old Testament looks back to that emancipation as the great act of God in history of his people. You know also that liberation from slavery forms the theological backdrop to Jesus' life, death and resurrection, which frees us from our slavery to sin, death and the devil. Furthermore, in the New Testament book of Philemon, the Apostle Paul petitions for Philemon, who was a Christian master, to release his slave Onesimus so that he might be both a free man as well as a dear brother in the Lord. And again in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, the Apostle Paul encourages slaves to gain their freedom where they can. So it's not true that the Bible encourages slavery. But I guess the broader reality is that slavery in the New Testament times is quite different to what we first imagine, which is uh, typically either black Africans who were kidnapped from the African continent to work on the cotton or tobacco plantations in the deep south of the United States, or those enslaved today as sex workers or factory workers against their will and with no hope of release, for whom we're about to pray in just a few moments. No, first century slaves often sold themselves into slavery to repay debts, for example. The usual term for slave in the New Testament is a word that means bonded servant, one who sold himself into slavery for financial reasons. And it wasn't until later that that term came to refer to slaves who were the spoils of war. Many first century slaves were well educated. They rose to prominent positions within their households. They were usually the tutors or the guides of their master's children. They were often treated with respect. They could marry, run a business, accumulate wealth, purchase their freedom, and were normally set free by the age of 30, according, according to Roman law. Now, obviously, there were also many abuses against slaves as well. But did you know that as much as two-thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves at the time of the writing of the New Testament? Two-thirds. Simply a feature of society that the Apostle Peter couldn't overturn or even condemn for fear that many slaves would starve. And there was also the fear that any revolt by slaves might be met with a brutal response, which had happened less than a century earlier after a revolt led by Spartacus in 73 BC, which caused Rome to treat slaves in the west of the empire much more harshly than those in the east. And so this passage doesn't encourage slavery and God doesn't condone it. It simply acknowledges the reality of it in that culture and the relative power that the apostles had. They weren't presidents who could write great proclamations of emancipation. They were embattled leaders of a fledgling religion addressing their congregations who tended to be at the lower end of power structures. The Apostle Peter couldn't address pagan masters here, they just weren't his audience. Although there is an implicit instruction to Christian masters to treat their slaves well. Now today we are in a position to pray for and work for the release of modern day slaves, which is quite a, a different category altogether. And we're gonna do that shortly. We're gonna do that sincerely. But in line with the general argument of this section, Peter asks slaves to respect their masters, even if their masters are harsh. He expects slaves to work hard for their masters, those who are good and those who are harsh. 
He requests that they submit themselves to their masters rather than rebel against them. And again in verse 20, you see that that idea of doing good, of living good lives in the midst of hostile unbelievers in order to bring commendation to God and from him. Now, I don't think this is the exact same situation, but this principle can apply to those of us who are workers as we relate to our bosses. Should we respect them? Should we work hard for them? Should we submit to them? Well, not if they ask us to do things which are immoral or illegal, but where it is willing and wise support of their leadership, then the answer is yes. So work hard and be diligent and stop moaning and quit complaining about your colleagues and get on with it and add value become trusted and be reliable and live good lives amongst unbelievers that though they might accuse you of doing good, or doing wrong, I should say, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And by the way, Christian bosses, you need to be a decent, honest, caring and supportive boss too. Everyone submit to human authorities. Slaves, says Peter, submit to your masters. Uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, respect your wives. Ultimately, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, All of you be like-minded, love each other, be compassionate and humble. I mean, we all have to submit to each other in Christian love and humble service. Nobody, nobody who is a believer escapes this. And so what is it that will drive this sort of behavior? That is so countercultural that it's even awkward. In this passage, did you notice the fifth person who submits? All of us, verse 13. Slaves, verse 18. Wives and husbands, chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. All of us again there in chapter 3, verse 8. But in 2, verse 21 to 25, there's one other person who submits. And it's the Lord Jesus himself. There is one other person who lived a good life amongst unbelievers. Verse 21, read it with me. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. Did he live a good life amongst unbelievers? Verse 22, he committed no sin, no deceit. He did not retaliate. He made no threats. Who did he submit himself before exactly? Verse 23, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He submitted himself before the sovereign purposes of God. And which unbelievers did his life and obedient death impact? Was it not you and me? Amongst many others. Verse 24, by his wounds we have been healed. Have we not? Verse 25, return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Have we not? All because he lived such a good life amongst us. All because he submitted himself to God's sovereign plans for Jesus. Well, as we finish up, friends, there is a lot in the Bible that sounds awkward. Though living good lives doesn't sound immediately odd, does it? But as foreigners and exiles here, away from home, living good lives in the midst of unbelievers, it is going to feel awkward from time to time, maybe a lot of the time. But if it leaves people healed by Jesus' wounds, 
returning to the shepherd of their souls and glorifying God on the day that he returns. But I have to say I'm okay with awkward. And I hope you are too.